0: Hey, my name is Zach. I'm the lead pastor here at Restore. Thanks so much for checking out this week's message. Uh, I hope that it's encouraging to you and inspiring to you. I hope that it causes you to dive deeper into the scriptures. And I hope that you're able to do that with some people around you, with some community. Um, but if you don't have that, we would love to invite you into the community here at Restore. If you want to take a next step, get more connected, you can just go to restoreaustin.org connect, fill out a card on there, and I will personally reach out to you in the days after you do that. And if you want to grab coffee with me or just get more information about the church, I will make myself available to you for that. As you will hear, we are in this thing called a year around the table. and It really comes from this vision that God's given us. That Restore would be a place where anyone has a seat at the table and everyone experiences the extravagant love of Jesus. So A, I hope that you experience the extravagant love of Jesus as you check this message out. And B, if you don't have a table to sit at, we want to invite you to Jesus' table here at Restore. When I was in middle school, our church required every sixth grader to go through something called rite of passage. Rite of passage. Now, I know that name sounds pretty cultish, um, and looking back, the class was, was actually fairly cultish itself, um, but it made logical sense the way that this church was structured, because you see, that the day someone entered seventh grade in this church, they became a legal voting member of the church. And in a congregational church like ours, like the one that we were in, one where every member has a single vote, that meant a chubby and rebellious middle schooler like me and the senior pastor technically had the exact same power at a business meeting, right? And that's a terrifying thing. So before any young person could become a voting member, they had to go through this rite of passage class. Now, we don't really have time to walk through the content of all of it this morning, but suffice it to say, rite of passage was half like really sweet, good, Jesus loves you and everyone else stuff, and then half kind of indoctrination about how our church was right and every other church was wrong, because after all, they had to make sure, right, that we would vote the party line at church business meetings. But the content of the class paled in comparison to the crescendo at the end, because upon graduation, all rite-of-passage kids were asked to plan and lead a Sunday morning worship service, all of us together. And it was glorious. I'm not going to lie to you. (laughs) The whole class voted on various assignments, right? Like one kid would lead the choir, another would do the opening prayer, two or three would, you know, take up the morning offering, although they didn't let us count it, which was definitely a good call because there were some kids who would have pocketed some bills um, that I went to school with and class with there. But then one lucky kid would get to preach that Sunday's sermon. And as you can probably guess, the preacher was the most coveted role. And after a campaign loaded with mudslinging and salvation questioning, I beat out the competition, and I was chosen to preach the rite of passage Sunday. Now, the following year, I would be kicked out of the youth group at this church. That is a true story. But for the time being, I was the chosen one. Now, all I had to do was decide what I was going to preach on. Now, during my research, which basically consisted of going to the church library and looking for the smallest and shortest book possible, I stumbled across this, the prayer of Jabez. Raise your hand if you remember the prayer of Jabez. All right, somewhat obscure, but we've got, to, we've got some hands. It was released in the year 2000. And it sold 9 million copies in its first two years in print. Now it has sold almost 20 million copies, making it one of the top 10 best-selling Christian nonfiction books of all time. This book is based on an obscure passage in the Old Testament book of First Chronicles. So it's a genealogy of this character named Judah. And so it's just kind of this big list of names. And then right in the middle of the genealogy, these two verses jump out. Jabez was more honorable than his brothers. His mother had named him Jabez saying, I gave birth to him in pain. Jabez cried out to God of Israel, oh, that you would bless me and enlarge my territory. Let your hand be with me and keep me from harm so that I will be free from pain. And God granted his request. That's it. Then it goes right back to the genealogy, the list of names. Now you may be wondering how one of the most popular Christian books ever is based on those two verses. Well, according to Bruce Wilkinson, who wrote this book, the prayer of Jabez is a model for any Christian who wants to experience the blessing of God. So in his book, Bruce teaches us how to pray this prayer of Jabez in a way that compels God to give us health and wealth and prosperity. Now that all sounded great to me as a sixth grader. So on Rite of Passage Sunday, I got up and I preached the best prosperity gospel sermon any 11-year-old has preached in the history of the United States of America. And I haven't fact-checked that, but it has to be true. (laughs) But in the 20 years since that sermon, I have realized just how much of a lie that message really is. Because you see, some of the most Christ-like people I have ever known are poor and sick, while some of the least Christ-like people are rich and healthy. Also in the last 20 years, I've watched so many pastors preach a gospel of prosperity to a church filled with poor people while they themselves, the pastor, lives in extravagance. They weren't helping people, they were extorting them. We've all seen this, televangelists, people like that. Now, seeing all of this led me to a time in my life where I thought being a true Christian meant denouncing all material gain, giving away all your possessions and spending the whole day praying but I've come to realize that's not the way of Jesus either. So what does Jesus call us to do when it comes to our money and our possessions? What does it look like to follow him with our finances? Well, the first thing we need to know is that Jesus cares a lot about this subject, like a whole lot. Did you know that Jesus talked about wealth more than he talked about heaven and hell combined? Let that sink in. He talked about Wealth, more than he talked about heaven and hell combined. Did you know that 16 of the 38 parables Jesus told were about how to handle money and possessions? And in the Gospels, one out of every 10 verses, 288 in all, deal directly with this subject of money. Listen to this. Throughout the Bible, we find 500 verses on prayer, about 450 on faith, but more than 2,300 on money and possessions. So if Jesus and the whole of Scripture talk so much about this, then why don't we? Why don't we talk much about it? I can't speak for other pastors, but I'll tell you that I have been hesitant to teach about money because I have just seen it done so poorly for so long. So before we get any further, I want to make two apologies. First, I want to apologize for the way that finances have been used by people pretending to represent God. For all the times churches and pastors have taught unbiblical things about money for the purpose of selfish gain. I'm sorry. And I'm sorry if you personally have experienced that. That's the first apology. The second one is this. I want to apologize for letting all of that stop me from doing what I know is right. For allowing fear to keep me from talking to you all for six years about something that is so so important. I'm sorry for that. So today, we're starting a teaching series that I have been putting off for six years. It's called Free from the Love of Money. And the kind of subtitle, if you will, is Principles and Practices to Help Set You Free from Consumerism, Materialism, and Greed. Because not only do these, those three things enslave us, they cause us to misplace our priorities. You see, as Christians, right, we're called to love people and to use money. But consumerism, materialism, and greed teach us to do the opposite, to love money and use people. But thankfully, God has given us the antidote, generosity. You see, developing a generous spirit is the key to being set free from consumerism, materialism, and greed. So during this series, we're going to look at two principles and two practices to help us foster a generous spirit. Spirit. Now, this series, it also takes place inside of our larger year around the table, which we started back in August. And we're calling it a year around the table because our vision here at Restore is to be a place where anyone has a seat at the table and everyone can experience the extravagant love of Jesus. And so back in the fall, we kicked off this year as a way to focus our attention on walking through what does it look like to embody this vision. So to do that, we've been looking at six markers of what someone's life would look like when they are seated at Jesus' table and doing everything they can to follow him. Are you with me? They are these six things. I depend on Jesus, I'm a part of the family, I live invitationally, I look for ways to be generous, I pursue justice for the marginalized and I include everyone. This series today we're starting is based on I look for ways to be generous because like I said, developing a generous spirit is the key to being set free from consumerism, materialism, and greed. Now one more quick thing before we look at the first principle today. That is that all of this applies to all of us. Let me say that again. All of this stuff that scripture and Jesus says about materialism, money, possessions, all of that, all of it applies to all of us regardless of our socioeconomic status. Because you see, having a generous spirit is about giving and receiving. It's about helping others and letting others help you. But more than anything, it's about understanding the way Jesus desires for all of us to relate to money and possessions, no matter how much or little we might have. So with that being said, let's dive in. The first question I keep getting from people when I tell them we're finally talking about money after six years of mostly avoiding it is, why now? Right, Why, why start talking about it now? And I'll tell you very simply, it's because I have been convicted by the truth and the gravity of these words from Jesus, where your treasure is, there your heart is also. Where your treasure is, there your heart is also. There's an old saying that goes something like this, if you want to know what someone really cares about, look no further than their calendar and their bank account. Because regardless of what we might tell ourselves or others, where we spend our time and our resources tells. Us, what matters most. It's that simple. Where our treasure is, there our heart is also. When talking about these words from Jesus, New Testament scholar Ben Witherington shows us that in the Jewish culture in which Jesus lived, the heart is actually even more significant than the way we use it today. Here's what he says The heart in the Semitic ways of thinking was the control center of the human personality the center of thought, feeling, and will. This parable that Jesus talks about is suggesting that whatever one counts as treasure, whatever one values most, will determine one's life orientation. Another way to say it, what one will do with one's time, money, and other resources, one's treasure is the ultimate expression of one's character or person. Our treasure is, is the ultimate expression of our person and character. So when Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart is also, he's saying that what we do with our time and money doesn't just indicate what we care about. It actually shows us who we are. And I'll be honest with you all. When I see what humanity treasures, I get worried about our hearts. If this is true... If what Jesus said is true, that where our treasure is there, our heart is also, when I look and I see what we often treasure, I worry about our hearts. Just this week, I watched one of the most prominent Christian financial advisors publicly advocate for making our financial decisions based on the market rather than on the words of Jesus. He was asked point blank, should the words of Jesus and, and your Christian faith dictate how you interact, and make economic decisions? He said, no, the market dictates that. Everywhere I look, I see people chasing more, more money, more possessions, a bigger house, a nicer car, another promotion, a bigger paycheck. We want success and prosperity and upward mobility. We want to achieve and advance and accumulate. We want more stuff, nicer stuff, newer stuff. We want to save as much as we possibly can because we believe it will give us the sense of security that we have been chasing for so long. Y'all, this is so prevalent in the United States that we literally call it The American dream. But not only is this dream nowhere to be found in Scripture, the relentless pursuit of it is actually killing us. It is killing us. I love how Mark Scandrett puts it in the introduction to his book called Free, Spending Your Time and Money on What Matters Most. He says this, We live in one of the wealthiest economies on earth, and yet many of us feel crunched for time, stressed in our finances, or perplexed about what makes life meaningful. Our culture is driven by a sense of scarcity, fear, and an unquenchable quest for more. If we don't make conscious choices to resist these impulses, the force of a materialistic and consumeristic society will make most of our decisions for us. The scripts we've inherited about material prosperity are wearing us out and robbing our joy. This is the reality of the culture in which we live. And listen to me. This is really important. If we do not choose to intentionally divest ourselves from materialism and consumerism, if we do not choose to deliberately fight against scarcity, fear, and greed, we will never be free to experience the fullness of life that Jesus wants for us. Never. Because if we don't make these active choices, like Mark Scandrett says, the force of a materialistic and consumeristic society will make those choices for us. All of this leads me to principle number one, and that is it's not just money. It's not just money. Just money is in quotes here because it's kind of a common colloquialism that we use, right? We say, I know I probably shouldn't make this purchase on a whim, but it's just money, right? I know I shouldn't go shopping just because I'm bored, but it's just money. I know I don't need this extravagant item, but it's just money. I know I probably should make food at home, but ordering takeout is easier and it's, it's just money, right? Last time I said this, I was at Costco. And they had a deal on a pool. I was like, oh my gosh, this is like a a full-size pool. I can inflate it in my backyard. It will bring me so much incredible joy. And for the price, it's like stealing it. I mean, they're basically giving it away, right? It's Costco. And I thought, that's just money. Throw it in. The ironic part is that we say this throwaway phrase, it's just money, all the time in order to mask the fact that we all know it's not just money. Money is powerful. And the ruthless pursuit of money and power it can buy is the driving force behind so much of the brokenness in our world. Let that sink in. I want you to think about that again. The ruthless pursuit of money and the power it can buy is the driving force behind so much of the sin and brokenness in our world. That's why Scripture says the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It's not just money. We know that. And Jesus confirms it. Here's the full passage in which Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It's from his acclaimed Sermon on the Mount, a message viewed by both religious and non-religious people alike as one of the most influential speeches ever given. Here's what he says. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moths and vermin destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And he says, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Jesus is saying here, we can know where our treasure is by what catches our eye. Where our eyes take us. The things we look after, the things that we pursue, if those things are healthy, then we will be healthy. If they are not, then we will not be. And he goes on to say, very pointedly, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. You cannot serve both God and money. It doesn't get much clearer than that, does it? I think it's so telling that this dichotomy between serving God and serving money is the one that Jesus chose to be so definitive about. I mean, think about it. If I asked you or, or any of your Christian religious friends, like, what the opposite of serving God is, I bet none of you would say serving money, right? If I asked you to fill in the blank on this sentence, you cannot serve both God and blank. Like, you might say sin, sin or evil, or hate, or any number of things that we hold up in contrast to God. But if someone didn't already know this verse, I'm telling you, there's no way that you would fill in that blank with money. But Jesus did. Another way to look at it. Jesus is famous for speaking in parables, right? Answering questions with questions, being vague, being dodgy, kind of making people think deeper with his responses. That's like his whole shtick. But in this moment, he is perfectly direct. You cannot serve both God and money. You can't do it. You cannot do it. I want to talk for a second about the word Jesus uses for money in this verse. He takes our first principle that we're talking about even further because the word Jesus uses here is actually not just money. He says, you cannot serve both God and mammon, You cannot serve both God and mammon. How many of you have ever heard the term mammon before? Raise your hand up. A couple of you. Similar to modern English, the languages of Jesus' time had many different words for money, right? Some were all-encompassing like wealth or riches, while others described like specific types of currency, gold, silver, shekel, denarius. I say all that to say this. Jesus had a ton of options for this word, and he doesn't use any of them. Instead, he uses the obscure term mammon, a word that, listen, no one aside from Jesus uses in the entirety of the biblical text. It's never used before. It's never used again. So what is mammon? Here's biblical scholar Tim Mackey from the Bible Project. Jesus calls wealth and money by the name of a Greek god, mammon. Mammon is a deity. It's money personified as spiritual power that stands in competition to God. Mammon is money personified as spiritual power. Jesus is saying that money is like a God because we can choose to place our faith in it or we can choose to place our faith in Jesus. We can choose to place our faith in money, all the promises that it makes, the hopes that it brings, the security that it buys, or we can place our faith in in Jesus. We can do one or the other, but listen, not both. That's what makes wealth and possessions so dangerous. It's why Jesus warns us about them constantly, why he personifies them as a spiritual power, and why he says that pursuing them is the antithesis of pursuing God. It's why he said, it's easier, to go th- it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle Than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Because it's not just money. It's not just money. Because we are constantly being tempted to place our trust in it rather than in God. We are constantly being tempted to use it to build our kingdoms rather than God's. But Scripture and Jesus are clear. You cannot serve both God and money. You cannot pursue both God and money. And you cannot love both God and money. Because Jesus said that if he doesn't have your treasure, then he doesn't have your heart. And hear me, if anything besides Jesus has your heart, you are in danger. And I'm not talking about being in danger of like, Satan's torment or a fiery eternity in hell. This is not like a fundamentalist scare tactic. I'm talking about being in danger of giving your heart to something that will always, always fail you. And it will always let you down. I'm talking about placing your faith in something that will never come through for you. That is a dangerous place to be. Because wealth and possessions are constantly making promises they can't keep. Money says that it will give us joy. It will give us hope. It will give us fullness of life if we'll just get a little bit more of it. If we'll just put a little bit more away. But it's lying. Mammon can't provide all that. It's a false God. Only the one true God can give us those things. So the question becomes then how do we serve God and not mammon? How do we break free from consumerism, materialism, and greed? Well, we're going to spend the next four weeks talking about principles and practices found in scripture that will help us do exactly that. But for now, let me leave you with this. It's the very next section in Jesus's Sermon on the Mount. It's deeply connected to what he was just talking about in the previous one. He says, therefore, which means in light of everything I've just said about money, in light of me saying you can't serve God and money, in light of me saying where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life. What you will eat or drink about your body, what you will wear, isn't life more than food and your body more than clothing? Look at the birds. They don't plant or harvest or store food in barns for your heavenly father feeds them. And aren't you far more valuable to him than they are? Can all your worries add a single moment to your life? And why worry about your clothing? Look at the lilies of the field and how they grow. They don't work or make their clothing. And yet Solomon in all his glory, in all his abundant wealth, was not dressed as beautifully as they are. And if God cares so wonderfully for the wildflowers that are here today and thrown into the fire tomorrow, he will certainly care for you. Why do you have so little faith? So don't worry about these things saying, What will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear? These things that dominate the thoughts of unbelievers. But your heavenly Father already knows your needs. Here it is Seek the kingdom of God above all else. Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously, and He will give you everything you need. Don't worry. Don't worry don't worry. The context here for worry is more like obsession than anxiety. Jesus is talking about this this unrelenting pursuit and obsession of material things. He says, why do you obsess about money and possession? Jesus asks. Don't you know that road only leads to emptiness? Don't you believe your father in heaven will take care of you? He encourages us to leave those futile pursuits behind and to seek the kingdom of God instead. And he promises that when we do that, everything else will fall into place because our priorities will be in line. Seeking God's kingdom first starts with being honest about what we're seeking now. That means taking a hard look at where we spend our time and where we spend our money. Listen, find your treasure and you'll find your heart. If you go looking for where you spend your time and your money, check your bank account and your calendar. If you find your treasure, you will find out where your heart is. Like I said earlier, we'll keep talking about how to do this over the next few weeks, giving you opportunities to practice generosity through things like the food and toiletries drive I talked about earlier. And I'm so excited to continue walking through these principles and practices with you because despite what we focused on today, the Bible doesn't just have warnings about money and wealth. It also has very wise and beautiful and practical advice on how to handle them in a way that honors God and helps our neighbor and helps us experience the fullness of life that Jesus wants for us. So I hope that you keep coming back over these next few weeks and we'll explore them together. Let's pray. And I thank you so much. For this morning, for this new year, God, new possibilities that come with every new year are exciting, God. I pray that as we're at a time of kind of evaluating the last year, looking forward to the next one, as we're at a time of introspection, God, so that we can be propelled forward into the future, that you would lay this truth upon our hearts, that where our treasure is, there our heart will be also. That we cannot serve both you, and the relentless pursuit of mammon. We can't do it. And God, and I know for all of us that we desperately want to experience the fullness of life that you have for us. That when Jesus came and they asked him, why did you come? He said, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full, have it abundantly. We want to experience that fullness of life, God. So over these next few weeks, God, help us to make these intentional choices to choose you, to choose generosity, and to be set free from the grips of money and materialism, consumption and greed. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.